Genesis 7 ends on a note of judgment. God wiped out every living creature on planet Earth. The only living creatures to survive were those whom God saved in the ark. While the animals and birds likely hibernated, Noah and his family listened as the winds howled and the waves crashed against the ark. Days became weeks, weeks became months, and still God's judgment had not ebbed. What went through their minds? Surely Noah clung to God's command to take the animals and birds so that they would reproduce and replenish the earth. If God had planned for the animals to replenish the earth, then God intended for his judgment to end. Notwithstanding, God gave Noah no expiration date. Though Noah is floating by faith, he was undoubtedly troubled. In times of distress and judgment, it is a normal human reaction for a believer to lose hope and think that God has forgotten them. In Psalm 10 verse 1, David confessed that he was distressed because he felt as if God had forgotten him during some troubling times. Paul admitted that his issues in Asia were so severe that he was close to giving up on life, 2 Corinthians 1.8. Even Jesus experienced the human emotion of hopelessness on the cross when he cried out to God in Matthew 27.46. And so here in Genesis chapter 8.1 through chapter 9.17, it shows that when hope is lost, all is not lost. God does not remain silent or still. When hope is lost, God remembers his creatures, blesses his people, and remembers his covenant. When hope is lost, God remembers his creatures. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 19. We'll begin here uh, with verses 1 through 5. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. And also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. And the rain from the sky was restrained, and the waters receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. The waters decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. You see, when hope is lost, God remembers his creatures. And we see the remembrance of God in the fact that he caused the waters to subside. He caused the waters to subside. Verse 1 begins with a beautiful phrase, but God. There are perhaps no more magnificent words in all of Scripture than but God. Throughout Scripture, these two words announce God's intentions to intervene on behalf of his people. Amid judgment, God intervened and remembered Noah. Remembered does not mean that God had forgotten Noah but that God was paying attention to Noah in order to fulfill his promise and act on Noah's behalf. It's the same term used in Genesis 19.29. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow of Sodom. It's the same term used in Genesis 30.22. God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. God also remembered the animals and birds. He had spared these animals for three reasons. God spared the animals to repopulate the earth. He spared the clean animals to provide food for humanity. 
Additionally, he spared the clean animals to provide blood sacrifices for humanity. Note how God begins to act on Noah's behalf. First, he caused a wind to pass over the earth. Second, God closed the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky. Third, he restrained the rain. According to Genesis 7:12, the restraining of the rain occurred on Kislev 27, 40 days after the rain began. The wind and the closing of the fountains and floodgates occurred during the 110 days after the rain stopped. As a result, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat on the 17th of the 7th month, 150 days after the rain began. The land of Ararat is located uh, approximately in present-day Armenia between the Araxes River and Van Lake. The area is the location of the source of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And the mountains of Ararat run along the borders of Russia, Turkey, Armenia, and Iran. And its highest peak rises about 17,000 feet above sea level. Now by the 10th month, Tammuz first the tops of the mountains became visible. The tops of the mountains became visible. During the 74 days between the ark resting and the visibility of the mountaintops, there was a massive amount of water displacement. The text records four times here that the water abated. The water subsided, the waters receded steadily, the waters decreased, and the waters decreased steadily. The breaking apart of the Pangaea, i.e. the supercontinent, created vast areas on the ocean floor into which water could spill. The God-sent wind increased the process of evaporation, helping the waters to decrease. And as well, the massive amounts of water receding off the land would have created massive canyons. Now, as underscored in the study of Genesis 7, establishing Cheshvan as the second month has a significant prophetic impact on Genesis 8. Since Sheshvan is the second month, then the seventh month was Nisan, and thus the ark rested on the 17th of Nisan, or Nisan 17. Now, Nisan 17 is an essential date throughout the scripture. First, Noah's ark lands on the mountains of Ararat on the 17th of Nisan. The Hebrews entered Egypt on Nisan the 17th. The Hebrews passed through the Red Sea 430 years later on Nisan 17th. Israel celebrated first fruits on Nisan 17. Joshua was commissioned to lead Israel on Nisan 17. Hezekiah cleansed the temple on Nisan 17. Esther saves the Jews on Nisan 17. Now each of these events occurring on Nisan 17 is significant. However, the most celebrated event to occur on Nisan 17 was the resurrection of Christ, the Passover lamb, as Christ, the first fruits. Robert Fade, nuclear scientist and Christian theologian, in his book, a scientific approach to biblical mystery says the odds of just two of these events both happening accidentally on the same day of the Hebrew year are 1 in 129,000. The odds of these events all happening 
coincidentally on the same day of the Hebrew year, are one in 783 quadrillion, 864 trillion, 876 billion, 960 million. Quite the odds. There's no doubt that our God is a God of order, that God is in control. You see, God remembers his creatures. He caused the waters to subside. God also remembers his creatures because he gave Noah a sign. Let's read verses 6 to 14. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him towards evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days, and he sent out the dove. But she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the six hundred and first year, in the first month of the first of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dry." Forty days after seeing the tops of the mountains on Ab 11th, Noah sends out an unclean bird, the raven, and a clean bird, the dove. Now ancient mariners would use birds in order to determine the nearness of land. The raven, a carrion-eating bird, did not return. The text says it flew here and there until the water was dried up, meaning that it found rotting carcasses in the water, upon which to eat. The dove found no resting place, as doves will only land on objects that are dry and clean. As well, doves prefer valleys to mountains. That the dove returned to the ark indicated to Noah that the valleys were still wet. Seven days later on Ab 18, Noah sent out the dove again, and this time it returns with a freshly picked olive leaf. Now, olive trees are sturdy evergreens, and they can last for a thousand years. They primarily grow in high elevations, but can also grow, interesting, while submerged in water. And the olive leaf was a sign from God to Noah that not only was the water abating, but plants were growing. Another seven days on Ab 25, Noah again releases the dove. This time, the dove does not return meaning the valley was dry. God provided Noah another sign that there were significantly dry areas and vegetation upon which the animals and birds could eat. According to Genesis 8.3, 22 late days later, on Elul 17, the waters had significantly decreased. This notable decrease was 150 days after the ark had rested on the mountains of Ararat. On Tishra the first, the first month of the first month, Noah removed the covering or hatch over the window. 
Though Noah can see dry land around the ark, he does not move out of the ark until commanded by Yahweh. Interestingly, the term dry is the same term used to describe the dry land that appeared on the third day in Genesis 1-9, the dry ground when Israel crossed the Red Sea in Exodus 14-16, and the dry ground when Israel crossed the Jordan River in Joshua 4-23. In each of those passages, it explicitly notes that it was God that dried the land. And thus this unique term for dry or dried emphasizes God's sovereignty and omnipotence. And so God remembers his creatures. He caused the waters to subside. He gave Noah a sign. And then let's also see that he commanded Noah to disembark. He commanded Noah to disembark. Verses 15 to 19 of chapter 8. Then God spoke to Noah saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. The term then is what's called a, a while consecutive, and it's used to show a past tense narrative sequence. And I make mention of that because it designates that the command to Noah was spoken by God on Cheshvan 27, the second month on the 27th day, as we see back in verse 14. The verb go out is in the imperative tense denoting a command. God commands Noah and his family to disembark. As well, they are to unload all of the birds, animals, and creeping things. Without waiting or questioning God, Noah and his family obeyed God's command. After 377 days quarantined in the ark, they finally exit the ark. Now, looking for a sign from God or gathering information about the world outside the ark was not an act of unbelief on Noah's part. In fact, it is fitting for one to have their finger on the pulse of the times. That is, to have an understanding of the situation in which one finds himself or herself. However, as believers, we must be careful not to lean on our own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Remember, acceptable circumstances are not necessarily signs from God to move. Listen, the ground was dry. Noah could see that. But he did not move until God commanded him to move. I'll say it again. Acceptable circumstances are not necessarily signs from God to move. And I believe we need to keep that in mind, ladies and gentlemen. Just because it may look good or it may appear good or it may appear acceptable doesn't necessarily mean it's time to move. We've got to wait for God to clearly command. See, God expects obedience to His commands, not obedience based on our whims, or based on our emotions. 
God is to be obeyed the right way, with the right motive, at the right time. So God remembers His creatures. He remembers His creatures by causing the waters to subside. He remembers His creatures by giving Noah a sign. He remembers His creatures by commanding Noah to disembark. Secondly, we're going to see here that when hope is lost, God blesses His people. When hope is lost, God blesses His people. And we're going to be looking at chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 9 of Genesis, verses 1 through 7. First, God blesses His people with reproduction. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 7, As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. You know, in many respects, the post-Diluvian world was a new creation. Accordingly, God issued the same blessing upon Noah and his family that he had first given to Adam and Eve. The blessing of reproduction includes three aspects. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill. Be fruitful is the act of procreation itself. Multiply refers to an abundance of progeny. And fill means to be fully stocked. Noah's progeny were essential to the repopulating of the earth. However, none was more important than the descendants of Shem. From the lineage of Shem came Abraham, through whom God would birth the nation of Israel. Even more important, it is through the line of Shem that the Messiah would come, who would fulfill the promise given in the Adamic covenant to crush the head of the serpent, Satan. God blessed his people with reproduction. God also blessed his people with provisions. Verses 2 through 4 of chapter 9, The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth, and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now because most animals, birds, and creeping things reproduce more quickly than humans, and would overrun the human population now that it's been decimated to eight people, God placed the fear of humans into these creatures. Whereas Adam and Eve's descendants were farmers and herdsmen, Noah's descendants would be farmers, herdsmen, and hunters. In the garden, God blessed Adam and Eve with the provision of food from every plant yielding seed and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, Genesis 1.29. As such, they were herbivores. They consumed grains, vegetables, and fruits. The only dietary restriction upon humanity was that from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, Genesis 2.17. Now, in the post-Diluvian world, humanity becomes omnivores. That is, they're consuming grains, vegetables, fruits, animals, birds, insects, and fish. And with the consumption of meat came the divine restriction to not consume the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And the reason for this restriction is that blood is the symbol of life and blood is the divine cleansing agent. Only those creatures which have life have blood. Blood sets apart living creatures from plant life. Furthermore, when humanity sinned, God slaughtered a lamb and shed its blood to cover or atone for their sin. From that moment forward, blood became the divine agent 
of cleansing. And that blood is the divine cleansing agent underscores the importance of the shed blood of Christ. Hebrews 9.22 is clear that without the shedding of Christ's blood, there can be no remission of sin. Today, we're still omnivores, and we're still free to eat grains, vegetables, fruits, animals, birds, insects, and fish. Christ declared all food clean in Mark 7.19, a truth affirmed to Peter in Acts 10 and taught by Paul in 1 Timothy 4.3-4. Christ removed the prohibition on clean and unclean animals, or food, because the conditions necessitating the distinction no longer applied. Three dietary restrictions, though, still apply today, as seen in Acts 15, 28, and 29. You shall abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled. The restriction to not eat blood still applies for the same reason. As well, believers are not to eat meat from an animal that has been strangled. This prohibition is because blood is not usually drained out of a strangled animal. Additionally, foods offered to idols were restricted as eating such foods could send a mixed message to younger believers. And so, God blesses His people with reproduction, with provisions, and now with civil government. Civil government. Verses 5 and 6 of Genesis chapter 9. Now after the fall, humanity grew more wicked and evil, and as a result, God condemned the world to death. We know that from Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 7. He instituted the death penalty as the punishment for sin, and he wiped out global anarchy via a global flood. And following the flood... God established a civil government. Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now several things to note regarding the context of Genesis 9. One, God gave authority to people to govern society as intimated in the phrase, by man his blood shall be shed. Two, God instituted civil government before Noah and his family relocated and repopulated the earth. Three, the death penalty is the punishment for murder. And four, because life is sacred, or life is sacred because it is made in the image of God. God blessed humanity with civil government as the means of restraining evil, promoting good, and punishing wrongdoers. First Peter two thirteen to fourteen. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evil doers and the praise of those who do right. Romans 13, 3-5, Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. By creating and enforcing laws against murder, theft, rape, assault, and other crimes, the government protects its citizens from the destructive nature of immorality. God vests civil authority to strike fear 
into those who perpetrate evil. And the means of striking terror into the hearts of evildoers is bearing the sword, which refers to the use of capital punishment and lesser punishments to promote justice. God established human government to restrain sin. And while it is necessary to have laws and the enforcement of said laws, Christian, you and I must remember that the law only restrains. It does not regenerate. Only God's grace given through the Holy Spirit regenerates. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Titus 3.5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. If a government refuses to restrain sin, chaos will run amok. And when a government becomes corrupt or fails to govern itself and its people, the result is anarchy, and people will do what is right in their own eyes. In those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 21, 25. So when hope is lost, God remembers his creatures. He remembered his creatures when he caused the water to subside. He remembered his creatures when he gave Noah a sign. He remembered his creatures when he commanded Noah to disembark. When hope is lost, God blesses his people. In this case, he blessed his people with reproduction, provisions, and, and civil government. And finally, when hope is lost, God remembers his covenant. God remembers his covenant. We're going to be looking at chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, and chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. Now, this is the third covenant made between God and humanity in the book of Genesis. There's the Adamic, there was the Edenic, and now there's going to be the Noahic. There's three types of covenants in Scripture, what's called a suzerainty covenant, a royal grant covenant, and a threshold covenant. A suzerainty covenant is a conditional treaty made between a king and his vassals, whereby the king outlines what the king has done for his subjects and what he expects in return. A royal grant covenant is an unconditional treaty between a king and his vassals, by which he outlines what he will do for his vassals with all obligations placed upon himself as the king. A threshold covenant is an agreement made between two people or groups at the threshold of a tent or house. Now the Noahic covenant is a royal grant covenant, and as such it is unconditional. There were no conditions placed upon man by God when he gives this or makes this covenant with man. Not only is it unconditional, but it is everlasting. Let me just give you a very quick review of the covenants of God. First, there is the Edenic covenant uh, that was given in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 30. It's a suzerainty uh, type of covenant. That is, I'm this and you will do that. It is conditional and it was temporary. It outlined man's duties and punishments for eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Adamic covenant, Genesis 3, 16 to 19, was a royal grant covenant. This is what God is going to do for man. There were no uh, responsibilities placed on man, and it's unconditional. Now, the Adamic covenant is an everlasting covenant. 
That is, God promised to humanity to provide a seed, the Son, who will assuage God's wrath and redeem humanity. Now, here's the Noahic covenant. It also is a royal grant covenant. It's unconditional. It's everlasting. And the promise is to never destroy all life on earth with a global flood. Next will be the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. That too is a royal grant covenant, and it's unconditional and everlasting. God promised to Abraham and his descendants land, seed, and blessing. The land was for his descendants. The seed was the promised seed of the Adamic covenant, and that seed would come through Abraham and bless both Jews and Gentiles. In Exodus 12, we have the Old Covenant. This is a threshold or marriage covenant, and it is unconditional. It was intended to be everlasting, but because one of the parties broke it, it became temporary. In the Old Covenant, God promised to be a husband to Israel at the Passover in Egypt. Blood was shed at the threshold of the house. When the groom passed over the threshold, he signified he was taking the woman as his bride. Israel commits spiritual adultery, i.e. idolatry, which caused God to divorce Israel. In Exodus 19-24, we have the what's called the Sinaitic or Mosaic Covenant. This is a suzerain covenant, and it's conditional. In other words, God will do this, and you will do that. This, too, is an everlasting covenant. It outlines blessings for the righteous, as well as curses for the disobedient. And the law serves as a standard for righteousness, and it is these laws that will govern the theocratic kingdom in the future. There's the Levitical covenant in Numbers 25. It's a royal grant covenant. God's going to do this for Aaron's descendants. It's unconditional and it's everlasting. He promised that Aaron's descendants will serve as priests forever. There's the land covenant in Deuteronomy 30, which is again a royal grant covenant. It's unconditional and it's everlasting. It amplifies the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. If people disobey God, God is going to scatter them, but eventually restore them. And when he restores them, they will obey God perfectly. There's the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, which is again a royal grant covenant. It's unconditional, it's everlasting, and it amplifies the seed aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. The seed will reign on the throne forever over his people forever. And finally, there's the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. This is a threshold or marriage covenant. It is unconditional and it is everlasting. And the new covenant amplifies the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. Yahweh takes Israel as his bride. Jesus takes the church as his bride. The blessings include forgiveness of sin, knowledge of the Lord, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And God's law will be written in the hearts of the people. Now, as we come to our text here in Genesis 8, 20-22 and 9, 8-17, again, when hope is lost, God remembers His covenant. Let's consider the parties of the covenant, chapter 8, 20-22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal, and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to Himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. 
while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. Chapter 9, verses 8 to 10. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. After obeying God's command to disembark and release the birds, animals, and creeping things, Noah's first act is to worship God. He builds an altar and then made a sacrifice to God of every clean animal and clean bird. This is the first mention, by the way, of an altar in Scripture. See, before the flood, sacrifices were brought to the east gate of the Garden of Eden, and the Shekinah glory, appearing as a flaming sword, would consume the sacrifice. With the garden lost to the flood, the presence of the Shekinah was removed. Now sacrifices would be made on an altar. Now note that Noah's sacrifice was a burnt offering. A burnt offering is a blood sacrifice given as a voluntary offering for the atonement of sin. We see Job in chapter 1 and verse 5 offering burnt offerings on behalf of, the, of his sons for any sins they may have committed. As well, the entire sacrifice would be consumed on the altar. You know, later in Genesis 22, Abraham was willing to offer Isaac as a burnt offering to indicate his devotion to Yahweh before God provided a ram for the offering. And like Abraham's offering of Isaac, Noah's sacrifice is a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. Ephesians 5.2, Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering, a sacrifice to God as a what? Fragrant aroma. You see, that word fragrant aroma indicates that Christ died as a burnt offering. He voluntarily died and shed his blood on the cross as a burnt offering for the sins of humanity. The anthropomorphic statement, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, signifies that God was satisfied with Noah's sacrifice and accepted his worship. If God refused to smell the aroma of the sacrifice, according to Leviticus 26.31, it would have meant that he was displeased with the worshiper and destruction was coming. See, the phrase, the Lord said to himself, is a statement of divine resolve. In response to Noah's sacrifice, God resolved to establish a covenant between himself, Noah, his family, and their descendants. God's commitment to enter into a covenant with humanity is in spite of humanity's evil inclinations. And so as God remembers his covenant, we see the parties of the covenant. Now, let's consider the terms of the covenant, the terms of the covenant. Chapter 8, verse 21 to 22, and chapter 9, verse 11. Chapter 8, 21, The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9, 11, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. The first term of the covenant was that God would never again curse the ground. You know, previously God had cursed the ground when Adam sinned. 
He added additional curses on the ground when Cain sinned, Genesis 3.17 and Genesis 4.11-12. The promise does not invalidate the previous curses. Those curses that he placed during the days of Adam and Cain will not be removed until Jesus returns. Revelation 22.3, there will no longer be any curses and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. Graciously though, in the Noahic covenant, God promises not to add any additional curses upon the ground. The second term of the covenant was that God would never again destroy every living thing by the water of the flood. The phrase never again is used three times in this text to emphasize that God was making a divine oath. The divine oath was a source of peace for Noah and his family. They did not need to fear or worry each time rain came. The third term of the covenant was that God would not interrupt the cycle of nature. The flood had interrupted the seasonal cycle for over a year. By not interrupting the seasons, seed time and harvest would continue, thus providing food for humanity. The terms of the Noahic covenant gives believers hope against the backdrop of an uncertain and unknown future. Each rise of the sun and moon and the changes of season is, evident that God, is evidence that God is on the throne and will keep His promises. In Jeremiah 33, 20-21, God promised, As long as His covenant for the day and night remains, then so will His covenant remain that He made with David concerning the coming Messiah. That there has never been another global flood, and hence another global disruption of the seasons, then believers can have hope that all that God has promised regarding the Messiah will come to pass. So God, when, when hope is lost, God remembers His covenant. We have the parties of the covenant, the terms of the covenant, and now let's finally look at the sign of the covenant in verses 12 to 17. The sign of the covenant. God said, verse 12, Genesis 9, God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. When God establishes His covenant with humanity, He always provides a visible sign. Here God set His bow in the cloud. Now we know this is a rainbow. He set it as a sign of a covenant. Now it must be emphasized that the appearance of the rainbow was miraculous. You know, rainbows appear soon after the rain stops. In the case of this rainbow, it appeared 330 days after the rain had stopped. Now, why a rainbow? In Scripture, the rainbow is associated with God's throne. Ezekiel states in chapter 1 and verse 28 that the radiance of the Shekinah glory appears as a rainbow in the clouds around God's throne. The Apostle John also states that when he saw God's throne, Revelation 4.3, that it was encircled by a rainbow. 
And it's also significant that Hebrews 4.16 tells us that God's throne is called a throne of grace. And so ultimately the rainbow is a symbol of God's grace. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, Peter speaks of the manifold grace of God. The term manifold means many colored. Thus when one views the many colors of the rainbow, they are reminded of the many colors or variations of God's grace. Furthermore, the term bow translates the Hebrew term keset, which refers to the weapon of the archer. Here God takes a term associated with war and transforms it into a picture of his grace. As well, when one pictures a bow, the, the arch points, the archer rather, points the bend of the bow towards his enemy. When God set his bow in the cloud, he pointed the bend towards heaven. And while the bow of judgment should have been pointed towards humanity, God instead turns the bow of judgment against heaven, particularly against his son, Jesus Christ. The rainbow is not only for humanity, but for God as well. God says that each time he sees the rainbow, he will remember his covenant with humanity. Again, that term remember is the same term as used in Genesis 8.1. And when used in a covenant, it guarantees that God will bring about a future blessing on his people. In the context of the Noahic covenant, it means that God will act on humanity's behalf. He will keep his promise to never again destroy humanity with a global flood. Indeed, the next time that God destroys humanity, 2 Peter 3.10 tells us it will be with a global fire. See, my friends, when hope is lost, particularly amid judgment, as Christians we can be comforted knowing that God remembers his creatures. He knows the promises he has made and the plans that he has created, and he will bring each to fruition. God will never forsake or forget his people. Hebrews 13 verse 5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And we can rest in that promise because Hebrews 6.18 tells us it is impossible for God to lie. When hope is lost, particularly amid judgment, we can be comforted knowing that God remembers his creatures. When hope is lost, we can be comforted knowing that God blesses his people. God's going to bless us. You know, of the 112 references in the New Testament to blessings, none connect blessing with material prosperity. Paul wrote that God has blessed believers with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3. These blessings include being made holy and blameless before God, adopted as his child, redeemed through the blood of Christ, forgiven of sins, receiving the mystery of God's will, eternal life, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. God's blessings are then anything that causes us to be satisfied in God. And furthermore... Let's remember that God uses trial testings and tribulations as channels for his blessing. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Matthew 5.10-11, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of the righteous, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because of me. When hope is lost, we can be comforted knowing that God blesses his people. 
And finally, my friends, when hope is lost, we can be comforted knowing that God remembers his covenant. Each time a rainbow appears in the clouds, we have a sign from God that he remembers his covenants. As Jeremiah prophesied, as long as the Noahic covenant remains, the Davidic covenant will remain, which guarantees that David's future son, the Messiah, will come. That same Messiah instituted the new covenant with his blood. At the moment of salvation, you and I were made partakers of the new covenant, and as such were given a new heart and the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel 36, 26-27. That God remembers his covenant guarantees that you and I will always have a new heart and always be indwelt by the Holy Spirit no matter what happens in the world around us. May the rainbow remind us that nothing can separate us from God's love. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you, Father, that when hope is lost, you are not still and you are not silent. But rather, Father God, you remember your creatures. You bless your people and you remember your covenant. Father, we confess that in the face of mounting judgment, as we look around a world gone mad, a world diseased, a world of chaos and calamity, that Father, like David, in times of distress, we lose hope. We become discouraged. We become overwhelmed. Even like Paul, maybe some have even gotten to the place of despairing even of life. But Father, I thank you that following your judgment, those two beautiful words, but God. I thank you, Father, for remembering your creatures. I thank you for remembering us from the greatest to the least. You remember us. I thank you, Father, that you bless us. Not necessarily materialistically, but you've blessed us with the eternal. You've blessed us with eternal life. You've blessed us with redemption, justification, security, the gift of the Holy Spirit. On and on we can go of all the blessings we have in you. And Father, I thank you for remembering the covenant. Father, that is a great comfort to know that no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what comes down the pike, no matter what will make headlines tomorrow, famine, disease, distress, what have you, it cannot separate us from the love of God. Because your covenant is sure and secure. And I thank you that each time we look at that rainbow, we are reminded that your love never fails. We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.